Welcome to the Four Drink Think Tank. Join us as we embark on a journey of discovery from the depths of our minds to the farthest reaches of the cosmos, all while balancing on a delicate tightrope between sobriety and inebriation. We may not have actual credentials or any real expertise, but armed with our wits, our questionable knowledge, and a healthy dose of liquid courage, we'll tackle the big questions that keep us up at night. So grab your favorite libation, sit back, and prepare to witness the magic that can happen when two semi-sober pseudoscientists tackle the biggest questions of our time. Welcome to the Four Drink Think Tank. Who are we? I'm your director of Delightfully Daft Discourse, Kenny. And I'm your chief officer of absurdity, Chad. This week we're going to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to a lot of us. Things that are hot and fire and spicy. So we got a good set of things for you today, and uh, to lead us off with that, our drink of the week is none other than Fireball Whiskey, which I don't know if you've had Fireball before, but let me tell you, Fireball Whiskey is actually the result of a top secret collaboration between premium Canadian whiskey distillers and a blend of spices so classified, only the CIA actually knows the recipe. With its high-tech flavor of engineering and molecular-level precision, it is the perfect spirit for those who want to indulge in a little covert ops while they drink. And so with that, I think we will indulge in some covert ops. in our first shot. Mmm. It tastes like Wee Fest. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Warms the soul on these cold days. And cold they are. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's jump right into it. So, the topic this week is hot and spicy things. So, let's talk about what is heat. Because, like, it's kind of a mystery. Like, you touch something, and you burn your hand, and it hurts. And why? Like, why do things get hot? So, the short answer is that the molecules move faster. And they bounce around really quick and they're juggling together and supposedly you feel that as heat. But like, why does that make any sense, right? If it's just about the the molecules or the atoms of whatever moving around, then how come when you pick up a baseball and you throw it, the baseball doesn't get hotter? I mean, technically it would heat up slightly as it's moving, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. Or no. Through the air, but I mean... I'm not a scientist, I don't know exactly, but... Fair enough. (laughs) And most of us aren't here, but... The important uh, thing here is that it's all with respect to the, the center of um, mass of the object, right? So like, if you look at your baseball, the center of mass of the baseball is the literal center of the baseball. So when you go to throw it, um, all of the, the molecules and all of the baseball is moving in the same direction. And the center oh. of mass is like, it sort of cancels out. Um, so if it was moving against each other, it would heat up. Right, exactly. Like, so... It, Great example. If you could crush the baseball from all directions, not only are you compressing it, A, and, and causing friction heating, but um, you're increasing the the like, the like vibration of those, those atoms, and they're moving in different directions with respect to the center of mass. Um, so literally, like, yeah, if you go heat something up, like, let's take a brass ball or, like, a steel ball, you know, they're literally jiggling around in there at, the, at a small level. Like, if you could zoom in far enough, you'd see them little atoms bounce around and move. But they're all still kind of stuck to each other, so they can't can't quite slide away. So that's heat. So then the reason that when you touch something, it burns you is because all those jiggly atoms hit your hand and, like, the skin on your hand, and they actually, like, wreck the skin cells. And they just, like, punch holes in them and, you know, 
transfer some heat there and then like the cell wall melts and it's a bad time so that's that's heat in a nutshell kenny i mean you explained it uh, in a way that not above my head but it was something i learned something new to me well that's what we try to do here <laughs> education sort of <laughs> speaking of education um I think it's time we educate ourselves with another shot, since we now know what heat is. Some liquid knowledge. Some more liquid knowledge that only the CIA Clink. knows the true formula for. Those sneaky bastards. Mm-hmm. You know those spooks are up to no good. These fireball shots are a hell of a lot smoother than the vodka shots we had last week. Ah, oh, yes. There's a little that bit is, of flavor here. That is for sure. I guess another topic related to heat and fire and hot engines combustion i mean every car's got an engine in it this is sir do engines get hot they usually do when they start <laughs> and they need heat to for the engine to really do anything without heat you wouldn't have a moving car so tell us about combustion since uh that's up your <laughs> repertoire well director so i guess the way a car the way an engine works in general so your car for example you have a fuel tank, so your fuel tank goes into some injectors going into your engine, into the combustion chamber, then they going into the combustion chamber and then the crankshaft spins around pushing pistons up, combusting that fuel and air mixture, you need air, and then right when it gets to the top, your spark plug will make a spark and boom, explosion launching the piston downwards, spinning the crankshaft faster. So the way the engine works essentially, mixes fuel and air, compresses them a little bit, heats them up with that compression. As Chad was talking about, if you compress it, it'll heat up. Spark at the top, and boom, explosion. Makes things spin, which makes other things spin, which makes your wheels spin. And voila, NASCAR. <laughs> oh boy, yep, them NASCAR. <laughs> I guess a side note related to engines in the cold. If you ever have a, I guess up here in the north we have a lot of snow blowers and they tend to have some problems here up in the winter time. You know, they'll let them sit all summer long. You go to start it in the winter time and what the hell, my damn snow blower won't start. Um, fun fact for you though, half the reason that is if you have a newer snow blower, is that in the carburetor there's a bunch of little ports and orifices for stuff to move around and stuff to happen and they make those orifices a lot smaller because the EPA mandated that they're more fuel efficient because the EPA sucks <laughs> <laughs> the opinions of the show host here are not they expressed suck. to the yeah, they don't suck it? but this, that one particular <laughs> thing sucks well, that's why our carburetors suck let's take a step back what is a carburetor what is it doing so you, you go to start your snowblower or your, your lawnmower and you pull a million times and nothing happens why is that right your car has fuel going into this combustion chamber and it pulls the air in just from an air intake and then it uses spark to ignite it whereas a carburetor takes the air and fuel and mixes them together in a fine mist and that goes into your intake so it's an old-fashioned way of engines it's a more simple way a lot cheaper to make parts so that's why all your Small stuff like lawnmowers, snowblowers, stuff like that, or even snowmobiles. I mean, if they can make it cheaper, why not do it? So carburetors 
It's the same concept. They're mixing, but they're mixing the fuel and air. And there's a fancy little word called Venturi nozzle that the fuel passes through and turns it into a fine mist so that it mixes with the air better. I believe the term is atomization. Atomization. But I like Venturi nozzle. Don't forget that word. Venturi yep. nozzle. Venturi is a good word. I believe Venturi is just any sort of uh, port where like um, you've got a restriction where it goes down. Like a tube, if it goes from a big diameter to a little diameter, and then back to a big diameter. Right, and that's all it really is, is there's big diameter to little diameter, and the engine itself is pu- pulling suction to pull the fuel through that nozzle and atomizing it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the fuel come in at the, the little, like where the restriction would be in this this tube or this port? Yes. Yeah, so your carburetor has a fuel, like a little miniature fuel tank. It's got a float that'll keep it refueled. And then in order for the fuel to get into the engine, it has to pass through that Venturi nozzle and get atomized. All right, so uh, my carburetor is gummed up, and it won't, like, get fuel into the engine to, like, work. What's going on there? How come I'm not getting started? Yeah, super. I mean, along with this EPA regulation, better fuel efficiency, blah, 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 boring. Um, Along with that, those smaller ports. So the reason your carburetor gums up or the biggest reason, I mean, gasoline has an expiration date. It doesn't last forever. It, uh, oh, what the, varnishing, that's what it's called. So your, your gasoline actually varnishes in the tank, and it varnishes in every spot there's fuel. So it just becomes less usable, less efficient. So it starts gumming up. It makes this little this sticky residue. So the reason your carburetor stops working or doesn't work as good is that sticky residue gets left behind. And you really just need to take it apart and clean the crap out of it. Literally. Literally. And if also, if you've heard of a ultrasonic cleaner, that works absolutely great for cleaning your carburetors. You can take your whole entire carburetor apart, take all the little nozzles, everything apart, throw it in this ultrasonic cleaner, let it sit for a couple hours, and voila, brand new carburetor. Save yourself time. Save yourself money. Don't buy a new snowblower or lawnmower. Clean your carbs. (laughs) (laughs) that's my ted talk (laughs) and this concludes the ted talk for today well actually it doesn't though so let's go let's take another step further so that's that's a gas engine right yes tell me about diesel diesel engine the difference is it doesn't need a spark to ignite because it's under so much pressure that the pressure so a diesel engine no spark plug the compression is so much higher that it just explodes under pressure, which is awesome. <laughs> that's a lot of freaking pressure. So that's why diesel engines are built sturdier. They're more heavy duty to handle that extra pressure, extra com- compression, extra big explosions. But yeah, the problem with diesel, I mean, they're, it's a lot more expensive to make those heavier duty engines. Diesel itself is more expensive in today's a- day and age, but also diesel doesn't really like starting when they're really cold. They'll, some of them will do it, but I mean, the first the first problem you have with diesel in the wintertime, you have to have additives in your diesel to keep it from gelling up or it literally will turn to just like a gel. And then that doesn't flow. That doesn't do that. doesn't help you. So a lot of diesel engines, like when you start your car, they'll have, or a vehicle that's a diesel, it'll have glow plugs in it to actually heat the block up a little bit to help it warm up and then start better in the wintertime. I don't know how I was trying to word that, but... 
Well, basically the gist of it. You increase the temperature of that cylinder. Yeah. And hotness. Yep. Yep. Or like a diesel generator or just a standby diesel. They'll use a, a lot of coolant heaters usually, just keeping the jacket of the engine warm, the block itself, I guess, warm. Oil pan heaters are great for them, but yeah, essentially diesel. Diesel. More power. More power. Which I think uh, uh, brings us to our next sponsor. So when you have... We're doing a shot first? No, well, we can certainly do that first. Man, I'm just so parched. We are parched. <laughs> Cheers. It's been talking too much. Woo! All right. Now what do we got for a sponsor? For today's sponsor, we've got uh, an interesting product from GripTech. So GripTech has a, uh, a new product that is called an anti-lubricant. Huh? So let me tell you about them. Are you tired of slippery, slimery, lubricated nonsense? Do you crave the raw, gritty, unadulterated feel of metal on metal? Then boy, do we have a product for you. Introducing GritTech, the world's per- first provider of anti-lubricants. That's right. They're all about the dry, gritty, squeaky sensation that only metal on metal can provide. Our specially formulated coatings and treatments strip away all of that pesky lubrication, leaving you with a pure, unadulterated friction experience. From rusty gears to squeaky door hinges, Grittex products are perfect for anyone who loves that rough, grinding sensation. Plus, our products are made from entirely recycled scrap metal, so you can feel good about supporting the circular economy and the environment. So why settle for smooth, lubricated performance when you can embrace the raw power of friction with GrickTech? Try our products today and get ready to feel the burn. Oh, that's a great sponsor. I love, love GrickTech. I hate lubrication, I guess. Would you use them on your cylinder walls and your <laughs> diesel engine? I, if you want to make a smoke machine. Yeah, that's true. But anything can be a smoke machine if you operate it wrong enough. This is fair. <laughs> I mean... You just got to set it on fire and you're good to go. Anti-friction. Anti-friction. That's funny. All right. So this brings me to uh, a topic of also of fire and um, intense heat, but on an order of magnitude larger than a diesel engine. So diesel gets hot, right? What does it burn at? Is it like 500 C? 400 C? Mm, I don't remember the exact temperature, but yeah, it's definitely very hot. It's very up there. So... Uh, what we want to talk about today now is nuclear fusion, which is 5,000 or 50,000 C. So the last couple of weeks here, there was a breakthrough in nuclear fusion. So let's take a step back. So what is what is nuclear fusion? So if with diesel engines or gas engines, you're taking a fuel or hydrocarbon and you're applying heat and a spark and oxygen and you're making more heat and I guess carbon dioxide, Nuclear fusion is kind of on the other end of it, where you're taking helium, or you're taking hydrogen, or you can use helium in some instances, and you're trying to smash it together so that it forms a new element, in this case helium or lithium, if you continue to smash helium. And what happens is, is when you smash these, these atoms together, if you count all the particles in there, you find out that you end up short, but one of the particles gets converted to just like pure energy usually in the form of radiation of some sort. And this is great because it makes it really, really fucking hot, which you can use to usually heat steam or something like that and then um, spin a turbine and make power. So 
the breakthrough then was a couple of weeks ago at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California where they were able to break even. So what does this mean? Well, they have these giant superconducting magnets. So magnets cooled to almost absolute zero, which is the opposite of being hot. In fact, that's the furthest away you can be from that. And uh, they use that to make a big magnetic field to hold all this hydrogen in there. And they try to heat that hydrogen up and get it spinning and moving. And eventually there's some collisions and that causes the fusion, which causes more heat. And what they were able to do is they got more energy and heat out than they went, than they used to make the magnetic field and accelerate the particles. So this is pretty cool because this is the, it's kind of the holy grail of power. Uh, if you can get this to work, then literally all you need is water, some big magnets, and, well, you know, a facility to generate power, but you have unlimited fuel because, you know, just look at the ocean. So it's extremely efficient, is what you're saying. It's very efficient, and I mean, it is what the st the sun uses. It's how stars form and right. burn. True. But uh, it uh, would solve a lot of problems. It would basically make energy just about free, and there would be no discussion about carbon on the grid because, well, there's very little emissions with nuclear fusion. Plus, the, the cool thing about it is, like, you can't make weapons out of what's left. Like, you can't weaponize the helium only thing you're going to do is have high-pitched voices and uh, some balloons. So that was pretty cool. Um, on that note, though, I'm going to take a step back to maybe a year or so ago when there was another breakthrough with fusion, but it was a little bit different. So in the first example, you heat up hydrogen by smashing it together in a confined magnetic field, and um, you make fusion that way. There's this new type of fusion where it, it requires a very, like, how should we say, special laser, a uh, chirped pulse laser that you shoot into a cloud of hydrogen. And on the other side of that cloud of hydrogen is this boron plate. And what happens is, is the laser hits some of those hydrogen molecules floating around and shoots them into the plate and literally like embeds them in there. And then there's a, an electron that gets like stripped off, which electrons are basically electricity. And they get stuck on the plate, and then they make the plate negatively charged, because electrons are negatively charged, and there's a whole bunch of them piling up on this plate. And you literally just pull the power right off the plate. And so this hasn't been fully tested yet, but this would be the sort of thing that, like, could potentially be portable. I mean, maybe not in a car, but maybe in a large ship or an aircraft or something. You could just fire this laser into this plate with these... Uh, these this cloud of hydrogen and get electricity out without needing a generator, without needing steam or turbines or anything. So in other words, this is probably the power source we need to build Master Chief and a suit of armor for Halo. <laughs> and we need to get on that ASAP. Why we are we do. not funding this? We, we, we should fund this. We could fund this. We have money here. We have, we have a little bit of money. We could make this work. What are um, we waiting for? Should we start a GoFundMe page to make Master Chief? Let's let's do it. Well, let's actually let's just go. We'll go hit up some venture capitalists later. Venture capitalists. I bet a GoFundMe page we could raise a couple hundred thousand. Definitely. There's enough fan. Ooh, there's enough fan base there. And if there's one thing I've learned about GoFundMe and venture capitalists, as long as you show up with cocaine at the after party, they are always willing to throw money at the problem. And you have at least somewhat of a legitimate science-based idea. Right, or not who, science based, but database idea. I mean, and who doesn't love Master Chief? 
I don't know, criminals. <laughs> <laughs> the Covenant. <laughs> the Covenant, obviously, yeah. This damn Covenant. Oh, man. So what are the dangers behind this, though? It's, there's got to be a catch. There's always a catch. Ah, yes, the catch. Well, the catch is nobody's been able to do either of these things right mm. yet. Um, so there's this joke about nuclear fusion that it's always 30 years away, even 30 years later. Right. So that's been the holdup. Now, well, what- there's also a holdup of government shutting down nuclear plants or not allowing new ones to be built. It's kind of stopping the breakthroughs. Right. I mean, fission definitely is... So fission is the opposite of fusion, also hot, where you take uranium, like you make nuclear right, weapons. So a nuclear of... plant is fission, right? Yes, not right fusion. Now. Sure. Yeah. But however, the the principles are very similar, and there was this thought that maybe we could convert some of the old fission plants to fusion plants because a lot of the footprint is similar. Sure. But yeah, mm-hmm. why aren't we funding this? Sounds like we just need to fund more and get some more guys on this. We but... should get more guys on this. We can internally uh, move some of our development and R&D into nuclear fusion. We'll we'll have to bring it up at the board meeting on Monday. Yes, yes, the board meeting. I'll make a note for that. Let me write that down. (laughs) And note made. All right. Is it time for our fourth and final shot for the evening? I think it is. Or for the podcast, I should say. I don't know what you got going on after this. Well, we want to continue that sweet spot, as we talked about last week, of... uh, cognitive breakthroughs and um discovery and we are in the perfect state and on the up and up in that so yep cheers well, cheers to, to that mm. fireball is so good this is truly delicious but it's also a drink where you either hate it or you love it i i can concur with that i know <laughs> it's ma- also i know many people that used to love it and they're hey you want to shot a fireball hey shot fireball this fireball that and now they hate it See, the key is to not throw it up. You have yeah. to know when to quit. They probably flew cl- too close to the sun. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have some internal studies which we have shown that uh, the optimal amount of fireball consumption is right before you throw up. You need to stop. <laughs> Don't throw up. So you have, to, you have to figure out where that level is for you. Just, oh, I'm at 15 shots. If I have that 16th shot. I'm going to spit fire, and I don't <laughs> want to do that. And neither well, should you. That's a lot of shots. Can you imagine 15 shots? We could do 15 shots. At WeFest. We could do 15 shots right now. Oof. (laughs) It'd be quite an interesting podcast. And then also do zero edits on the podcast and just publish it. Boom. We could do a bonus episode where we take like 10 shots and just keep going until we can't think of topics anymore. (laughs) We'll do that in our guest episode. I want somebody else to suffer. Right. Well, we need at least one adult in the room. Yeah. Which, I suppose, is a good time to segue to our next topic. So to finish off heat and hotness this week, let's talk about a different flavor of hotness. Supermodels. Oh, they're Uh, so hot. (laughs) They are so hot. Well, and guess what? They're about to get hotter. So a group of researchers developed a new algorithm that is able to generate faces that are the most beautiful faces that you've ever seen and don't exist. Uh, basically, they were able to g- perform some uh, machine learning and uh, look at the various traits that make people attractive. And one of the things that comes out of this is that some of the most attractive people have the most average faces, meaning that if you take pictures of all people from all over the world and you sort of average their features out, they tend to be very attractive, which is kind of interesting. This is yeah, the if, th- you're, if you're too far on one end of the spectrum, yeah, it's not going to be... 
the best, right? It, that's that, that's kind of the idea. That's exactly the idea. This is why they say that mixed race people tend to be more attractive on average because you're sort of blending two sets of traits. But uh, these researchers took it to the next level and they created an algorithm that'll generate faces that are super attractive, like max out the scores and what people would call attractive. And the best part is, is that you could sit there and tune that to your personal tastes, um, which really brings up a, a question of where the future of this is going when you can make, you know, the perfect movie stars or supermodels and you don't need any people involved. I just picture like clothing models, like billboard models, stuff like that. They can be AI generated. They could do already do that, I'm sure. Well, You're advertising a product, have an AI generated supermodel and with the perfect supermodel. Well, that's a great point. Like, can you imagine, uh, you know, the cookies on your web browser are telling the Google ad services that your preferences for, you know, Scandinavian blondes that are. 510 and have this sort of facial structure and all of the clothing ads are that and all of the you know ads for products have them put in there and all of the like anything you want to buy has that edge thrown on it we've seen your instagram search history they have your you watch this picture for x amount of seconds so this is what you like and now all of your ads will be this it's actually funny you say that i saw a video uh, a couple weeks ago that Gosh, I don't remember who the artist was of it or, or who who did it, but they did. Uh, they took some eye tracking cameras and they put them in front of a screen. Oh, those are funny. Yeah, have you seen these? Or like they have the couples watch videos. Oh yeah, they're hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look. Yeah, you did. I can see it right here. Right. I think that the secret to that is just to look at everything so that you like you have plausible deniability. But it's funny to like watch the, the videos people get they, bent out of shape. They set you up for failure. Oh, obviously. Like, I, I have to think that they also pick the most um, gullible people. Gullible, yeah, and like uh, volatile people to be on there and to get pissed off. Right, yeah, it's an act also to just get pissed off for the video. It's interesting, yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to AI-generated supermodels. You know, we could uh, develop some models here to generate supermodels within our organization as well. Yeah, we definitely could. We're already over halfway there, I'm sure. We certainly are. Not to the supermodels, but AI-generated things. <laughs> we definitely have Unless a... Unless you've got some projects under that I don't know about. Well, we definitely have some projects that we've talked about at the board meetings, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see where they go. And we may see them in a, uh, an episode here very soon. All right, if we figure it out, we'll link it on our Twitter. <laughs> You'll know. You'll know for sure. You'll know. We'll, we'll tell you about it. All right, well, that leads us into our final topic. Uh, so we discussed temperature hot, we discussed sexy hot, and now we're going to discuss spicy hot. So what do you have for us, Kenny? How about the Scoville scale? How much do you know about the Scoville scale? Not very much. I've heard of it, but tell me more. Well, the Scoville scale is a me- measurement of the pungency or spiciness of peppers and spicy foods. Fun fact, it was developed by Wilbur Scoville in 1912, and it's, I mean, it's the biggest used measurement of spiciness today for sure the son of a bitch named it after himself (laughs) what a greedy guy (laughs) i wonder if that guy absolutely loves spice but he's probably never even heard of a ghost pepper well wilbur sounds like the whitest name i know and um i would feel like 
somebody who's like from India would truly know what spicy is. Right. Like this guy made it the scale and some guy in a, some other country, you know, somewhere in like India, yeah, is like, you don't know spice. I'll show you spice. <laughs> <laughs> Wilbur's like, I don't give a shit. I'm the one that wrote the book, bitch. They probably designed the upper end of the scale, let's be real. Yeah. But well, anyways, tell yeah. me more about Mr. Scoville and yeah, his the scale. The scale is based on the amount of capsaicin or capsaicin. I'm not sure. I think it's capsaicin, but but that's the compound responsible for the spiciness in chili peppers in a given sample. Hmm. So the capsaicin content is measured by diluting the sample with sugar water until the spiciness is no longer d- detectable to a panel of tasters. The degree of dilution needed to reach this point is known as the Scoville rating. Okay, so you basically take a pepper and like grind it up, throw it in some sugar water, and how much you need to dilute it is how spicy it is, kind of. Right, yeah, definitely. So, for example, a jalapeno pepper has a Scoville rating of 2,500 to 8,000. So it needs to, it needs to be diluted 2,500 to 8,000 times with sugar water to no longer be perceived as spicy, hmm. which... That's a crap load of dilution, actually. That's a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. The fact that it still has spice after up to 8,000, and that's just jalapeno. But yeah, the Scoville scale is divided into a bunch of ranges of spiciness with milder peppers, such as bell peppers and banana peppers at the very low end, and extremely hot ones like Carolina Reaper and uh, Trinidad Maruga Scorpion, which I have never heard of. That sounds interesting. Those are at the high end of the scale. So the hottest peppers I think that you can grow in the world right now have a Scoville rating over 2 million. Jeez, that's a lot of water. Yeah, 2 million times diluted. That's that's mind-blowing, actually, that the spiciness can show through until then. But yeah, so the Scoville scale is widely used today. It does have limitations as it relies on human perception and can be affected by factors such as the taster's individual sensitivity to capsaicin. But in recent years, they're developing better methods for measuring spiciness, such as high-performance liquid chromatography, HPLC. And I'm excited to see all about that because I absolutely love spice. I have to imagine, again, the people out of India with their nuclear hot spice. (laughs) You don't know spice! They don't, yeah, we don't know spice. That wasn't my take on an accent, that was just... You're canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, we're done. God damn. So, Sorry for all four viewers. <laughs> we'll clean it up next week. Um, what I think is kind of interesting is like the like the mechanism behind the spiciness. So w- one thing that I had read is that spiciness comes from a sort of an evolutionary trait to get more vitamin C. So one thing that's kind of interesting is things that are spicy, peppers, often have lots of vitamin C in them and... As you probably know, humans need vitamin C to live because we don't make vitamin C. Us and the guinea pigs are like the only mammals that like lost the ability to make vitamin C internally. So, really? Yeah, that's where... Um, you say most other animals make vitamin C? Yeah, they can make it internally and like our gene is Holy defective. Holy crap. So they're not out there eating oranges. No, they're not. And they also don't get scurvy. So Ooh, I suppose, yeah. Fun fact, uh, pirates. Pirate ship times, like uh, once we develop ships that could cross the ocean and go on long voyages like 
40% of those sailors died of scurvy. Right. They're just eating dried foods, salty-ass dried food. Right. And there's this, butter. Well, and there's this crazy story about how the British Navy discovered certain foods they needed to eat to prevent scurvy and then lost that knowledge. What? So there's sailors... That's part of why Britain had such a powerful navy for a while is like they didn't lose 40% of their sailors. They figured out nutrition. Yeah, they figured out nutrition. Basic nutrition. <laughs> I Who was the guy who sailed around the world the first? Was it Vasco da Gama or something? Oh. Something like that. Something like that. Anyways, his he had an adequate amount of food that had vitamin C in it. And that's why they didn't, uh, that, what, that's why they were actually able to get around the world. Because they ate enough food and vitamin C that... Uh, kept the scurvy away but uh yeah it's kind of interesting so the reason that we like spicy things is because we need the vitamin c but when you try to feed your cat or dog some spicy food they don't like it for so much because it's not part of their palate so is it is it possible that the reason i like spicy food so much is because i have a vitamin c deficiency could very well be or i don't have enough vitamin c in my day you should probably eat some more spicy food i'm gonna take a multivitamin that's got vitamin c in it you probably just need to eat more spicy food Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I love spicy food. I eat it a lot. But also, fun fact for you: Did you know that you cannot over? Supposedly, from what I've heard, anyway, you cannot overdose on vitamin C. Interesting. Poor K. No. Well, I, I guess I don't know if this is a fact, but I used to work with a girl that was in college, and she said her she had to do some report, and she did it on vitamin C specifically, and she told me that after a lot of research, she changed the topic of her report. In that you cannot overdose on vitamin C. And I, th- I thought that's crazy. I suppose be- it's water soluble, so you can right, always so get yeah. rid of it. But I mean, I don't know if I believe that 100%. There's got to be a point where you have too much and your your body can't even water dilute it. I mean, is that at the point where like you t- consume too much of anything? Like literally water? <laughs> right. Yeah. You like, just like drown. Like the amount of energy drinks you would have to drink to die is like in the hundreds you die of something else before a caffeine overdose right same thing there it's got yeah i could see that it's like you just drop into a vat of vitamin c and you proceed to try to drink it all and then you die <laughs> just injecting it directly into your bloodstream <laughs> what are you doing are you doing crack no i'm doing vitamin c i've killed all my cancer scurvy no more scurvy no more scurvy all right the scurvy is gone <laughs> So, uh, to make this all clean, um, let's make sure that we mention the fact that when you eat spicy food, you don't actually feel heat in your mouth. Like, yes, you feel heat in your mouth, but uh, you don't, you're not raising the temperature of anything. Right, yeah, spicy is a, it's a taste, I suppose, or is it like an acid? Well, no, that's a good way to phrase it, it's a taste. Um, So there's actually a receptor on your, your cells in your tongue called... TRPV1, um, which is responsible for detecting heat. And so, like, when when that receptor is activated, presumably because you are near something hot, um, it sends that signal of, like, heat, which then, if high enough, turns to pain. So but, capsaicin is imitating heat to your rece- receptors in your body, or your tongue, I suppose. Yeah, I think my understanding of this is that it's actually, like, fitting into that receptor and triggering it. Oh, and so, that's like, interesting. it artificially thinks that it's heat or hot but your brain has learned to like deal with it because it knows like oh this is food this is not actually fire in my mouth sure yeah and and it has vitamin c so we're gonna eat it Um, and it's slightly addictive right so it is definitely addictive for some people anyway 
what that does mean though is that when uh, another animal eats it, is they're actually probably feeling pain. They probably don't taste the spice. Is there other animals that eat spicy, like peppers and capsaicin? That would be a good question. Uh, I would say that our research should dig into whether or not the guinea pig, who has to make their vitamin C, likes spicy food. So guinea pig is the other animal. The guinea pig is it? the other animal. Shield. So that's uh, that's what we got about spicy food. Interesting stuff. I didn't know the thing about the guinea pigs being the only other mammal that cannot produce vitamin C. Yeah, don't take them on a pirate ship. <laughs> yeah, they'll die of scurvy. Arr. <laughs> and with that and with that uh i guess we'll wrap up this episode of uh the four drink think tank we hope you've enjoyed our semi-serious dive into the world of fire and heat as we've explored the scientific and uh cultural and spicy aspects of this hot topic as members of this high-tech think tank we have had one too many drinks during our investigation but hey that's always part of the fun we hope you've had just as much fun listening to our shenanigans as we've had making them Remember to join the conversation with us on social media using the hashtag 4DrinkThinkTank and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming adventures. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, let's raise our glasses to more high-tech thinking and low-tech drinking. Cheers. Cheers.